why companies want to be B2C? Because they want you to have the end customer. Who has the customer owns the value chain. Welcome to the J Curve, a podcast about tech ecosystem builders in Latin America with me, Olga Maslikova. My goal with the J Curve is to make the stories of LATAM founders and funders accessible for global community. Every other week, I interview spectacular entrepreneurs and investors who share their most valuable lessons of building, growing, and funding some of the most successful tech companies in Latin America. My guest today is Fabio Carrara, founder and CEO at Brazilian solar energy firm Solfacil, that has raised over $130 million from the likes of QED, The Fifth Wall, SoftBank, VEF, and Valor Capital. Prior to founding Solfacil, Fabio was director of business development at Venture Builder Project A. Fabio, it's a pleasure to have you as my guest. Welcome to the Jaker. Thank you, Olga. I'm super pleased to talk to you today. I would love to start with a little bit on you and talk about the most important personal and professional stages of life, milestones you've achieved that led to your desire to become an entrepreneur, because I know that this journey was not smooth and immediate. Sure. I think uh, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. So first of all, I feel like that I'm an entrepreneur by accident. I think my life was not pointing to entrepreneurship. So I'm not from Sao Paulo. We're speaking here from Sao Paulo today, but uh, I'm from the countryside, a city called Sumaré, one hour and something from here. I came to Sao Paulo in 2001, long time ago, 22 years ago, to do engineering in the University of Sao Paulo, which is uh, probably the best university of Brazil. USP. Is that right? USP, yeah, we say USP. And after like five years of undergrad, I decided to go to consulting to work for the Boston Consulting Group. And then after three years and a half at BCG, I decided to do my MBA. So I applied to a few schools. Did you apply to Stanford? So that's (laughs) why it was not written for me to become an entrepreneur. I didn't apply to Stanford. I, I applied to HBS, Wharton, for some reason, Berkeley, because my brother had done LLM there, London Business School. I was approved in all of them with the exception of Harvard, which I was waited listed. And eventually I chose Wharton, which is well known for, for being like a finance school. I remember my, my essays, you've got to write some essays to, to do your MBA. You did an MBA, right? Yeah. Instead of we have to write two. Two. Yeah. yeah I had, I probably had to write like four or five. And, uh, most of my essays were around politics because uh, I come from a family of politicians. Both my father and my mother, they were a mayor of the city that I was born in, in very different times, like my, my father more in the early 90s. Both were mayors, mayors of Yeah, the in city. different times. Uh, yeah. My father started as a politician early on in his career, and then uh, eventually he started to retire, and my mom is 10 years younger than him. So she started to get excited and eventually she, she became mayor as well. And I always liked politics because it feels that uh, if you really want to change something, even though I do think entrepreneurship, it's a means to address like most of the problems. But when you think about the most critical problems, it's tough to solve them without 
some sort of involvement with politics. That's why you see so many successful people, entrepreneurs that eventually in the end of their careers, they go to politics. So I went to the MBA and people who go from a consulting firm typically are sponsored. I was sponsored by BCG. So to some extent, there was a little bit less pressure on me to find a job. I was safe, like I was already promoted to the post-MBA position before going to the MBA. So I was well remunerated, very successful there. So in the first months of the MBA, instead of going to those network sessions uh, and trying to meet like the private equities, the VC firms or the startups, I was more talking to people and trying to figure what to do. At that moment of time, between 2010 and 12, I'd say that private equity was the hottest thing you could get out of Wharton. There was a common sense that uh, in Brazil, you had like five to 10 top firms. Private equity is a very small industry. They're going to hire one person per year. So there was like 10 spots for the Brazilian market for, let's say, 100 MBAs in the US because you had 10. 1020 at Wharton, 1020 at Stanford, uh, and 1020 at, at Harvard and so on. So it was very competitive. There was people looking for like investment banking. And yeah, I wasn't that excited. It all felt quite similar to being a consultant, being in small office, surrounded by intelligent people, but uh, it felt sort of the same, not a lot of action. So in that process, I met the entrepreneurs as well. There was like 10% of the class, they were thinking about starting a business. And I started to like more those guys. And I'm not sure if I thought that when I was there, but I, maybe I rationalized my decision after I came to Brazil and after I tried to my first startup. But I feel that uh, as a consultant, I was quite successful because I wanted and I liked to solve problems and talking and realizing that entrepreneurship was all about that. So I said, okay, if it's up to me to do something big, it's not getting a job in XY private equity firm. I have to create my own company. So that's when I decided to give a, give it a shot. Uh, Why did you decide to come back to Brazil and start a company in Brazil versus staying in the U.S. and move into Silicon Valley and try to build a startup in the environment that is perfectly designed for these purposes? And also there is an almost infinite source of funding available to those willing to do that post-business schools. It was not an immediate decision. The first thing that I did, I started something in the U.S., in Philadelphia. My second year of the MBA, I started a, a company called SmubHub with a friend of mine, an American, Matt, who used to live in Mexico. What well, was the nature of the business? The business was a marketplace to connect food service with their suppliers. So basically trying to help restaurants to source better because we figured like, so one, we're not very creative people. We're like consultants. We saw all those entrepreneurs who had a story about the situation where they suffered with something, they came up with an idea. We didn't have those stories. It was a very rational approach to start a business. So, okay, we're not creative. So let's uh, 
together a B2B business. And then we said, okay, it has to have a, a big time. So food services, like $1 trillion industry in the US. It was when Groupon was becoming the first, like the fastest company to reach like $1 billion in revenues. So we were trying to uh, adapt the concept of a uh, group purchasing to the supply chain. To some extent, that process was important for where I am right now. We didn't have that much grit with that business idea because I, I think we didn't have passion for what we were doing. So we did this business, it didn't work out. And I remember like starting to suffer because I was deciding to sort of give up. And I was, oh my God, I'm gonna leave my, my friend. He was a good friend, like uh, he's there giving all that he can and I'm gonna tell him I'm not up to that anymore. I wanna do something else. So I had a one month suffering process. When I get stressed, I, I smoke some cigarettes. So I smoke a lot of cigarettes that month. And then I told him, I said, it's okay, man. Um, so he stood with the business. We made like a small arrangement about equity. And then I started to think, should I go to Silicon Valley? Should I stay in the US or should I go to Brazil? And the reason why I came back was I felt at that point of time that I was in disadvantage to American entrepreneurs, even though the ecosystem has people from all over the world. The other reason was Brazil is such a huge country and there is much more inefficiencies here. So I felt there was more opportunities here as well. And finally, I, I don't know if you recall, but uh, 2012 was a year that uh, Brazil was on the front of The Economist with the, the crisis. Christ, the yeah. Yeah. So it was a very, very good moment to Brazil and Latin, especially Brazil. So you know, I said, I love my country. I'm going to go back and uh, I'm going to try to figure something to be done there in Brazil. So when I got back, first I negotiated with BCG. I managed to gain some time. I told myself I, I'm going to take advantage of those six months and try to find something to start. I was thinking of doing like Warby Parker Brazil. I was thinking of doing like Eventbrite Brazil. There was a lot of business that were starting to happen in the US and I was thinking of doing the tropical version here in Brazil. But something happened that uh, it didn't help me with finding the business idea, but it was important to me. My mom was running for mayor in that year and she had already lost three or four elections, previous ones. She tried like 2000, 2004, 2008. Talking about grit. Yeah, yeah, she, she, she's super grit uh, in that regard. And I had helped her, especially in the 2008 election, and she lost for like 1,000 votes. So it was very close. And I was super frustrated with her trying and not being able to do it. So I helped her with the election. It's typically like a two to three month period, very intense, where you have to coordinate with the city councils. And to some extent, I postponed my effort to start a business. She won. It was a successful venture. But then there was little time until I had to go back to BCG. I remember having a chat with my father like uh, December 26th after Christmas. Well, I have to go back 3rd of January. I'm not super happy about going back to consulting but I'm, I'm not super sure about the things that I can do. It's sort of like when you have that fear inside of you, 
because it was a different time. It was not a time that you would put a pitch deck and it would raise like $5 million. <laughs> and it, it was like super early in terms of venture capital here yes, as well. Was, like was it was a, not an easy yeah. thing to raise, period. And raising when you start and you did not have an entrepreneurial experience is probably something even more complicated. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. So I went back to BCG. It was actually a cool year uh, because we did a project for CVS, the pharmacy in the US. They acquired a very small chain of uh, pharmacy here in Brazil. It was their first acquisition, international acquisition, even though they were the largest pharmacy in the world. So we were in this project where we're trying to help the largest pharmacy in the world to deal with two brothers that had like 40 stores here in Brazil. To some extent, it was very entrepreneurial, like seeing how those guys, there was a big clash of like culture. It was cool, but I remember mid-2013, I was in the office late in the night doing nice, beautiful slides. And I said, no, it's not for me. So I started to look for something. It was a period of time that a rocket internet was quite strong here in Brazil. They had started like several business like Dafiti, Easy Taxi. And I was talking to some people connected to Rocket. And one of them, he said that you should meet the guys from Project A, which is equivalent to Rocket, smaller and cooler. So I went to talk to Olivier, who was the managing director of Project A in Brazil. Project A was opening an office in Brazil because Rocket had had a very successful roll out in Brazil. So they were trying to do the same. Olivier offered to me a co-founder position in one of their startups. I accepted. Uh, I told him, listen, but I have to wait until the end of the year because I got my bonus, blah, blah, blah. So there was a transition period. One, two months later, he said, listen, that position, unfortunately, is going to be filled by someone else because the guy who had come up with the idea inside the fund decided to go to the startup. But I want you to take his, his position. It's an investment position. You're going to select the new business that we're going to put together and operate them in the first six months. So it's, it's a combination of like being a VC and being an entrepreneur. I accepted. It was interesting one to, to get to understand how a VC invests in a company, what are the important metrics? I mean, simple stuff like acquisition cost of customers, LTV, all those concepts that today feel very natural for me, for you. I mean, I was learning those things at the point of time. I did the screening process to invest in a few business, some like incubate, others just signing a check and investing in entrepreneurs. So I was able to meet really good entrepreneurs and also seeing like the bad ones who are trying to do like everything. And you can't be good in doing everything that you got to focus on something. One of the business that I was putting together there was a lead generation business. So basically the idea was to create a portal in which we would allow consumers to quote anything. And we would sell those leads to those people who would be able to serve those customers. Project A was really good with online marketing. 
So they wanted to leverage that in one of their incubated companies. And we found a company that was very successful in Germany doing that. So we went there and we partnered with this entrepreneur. We gave him a little bit of, of equity. We're not going to go to, to Europe. He was not going to come to Brazil. So it was a perfect uh, match. And the idea was for him to share best practices, like what he did to get there. And I was in a chat with them back in 14. And in that conversation, he told me that half of his business in Germany was like leads for rooftop solar. To be honest, at that point of time, I didn't really know what rooftop solar was. Or maybe better explaining, I didn't think as a consumer that I could put solar panels in my roof to produce electricity and to some extent be almost like independent of the grid. That conversation created some awareness to, to that fact. And I was intrigued. I said, wow, cool. And I didn't know Germany was such a big market for distributed solar, rooftop solar. So I remember coming back to Brazil, back in 14, curious. And then I started to do some research that eventually turned to be in a very long, long process uh, what SoFasio uh, is today. Were there any specific aha moments that kind of fueled your passion? Like what were the things that you got to know about Brazilian market for solar panels back then that continuously pushed you into that direction and not into any other direction? Okay. So in the process of being an entrepreneur, I've learned a few things. So one, you've got to have passion about what you're trying to do. I did not have passion about SmubHub. It was cool, but uh, it's just uh, something. Uh, especially with the incubator model of Project A, I realized that the approach of like copycatting a business that exists in the U.S., putting some seed money to start the business and hiring two co-founders from like uh, MBAs was not a very good approach. Because those people, they were not a, like passionate about the problem. And they didn't have a skin in the game. Yeah, right? they, they, and they didn't have a skin in the game. I also learned that you've got to be really focused. So in these years, coming back to Brazil, I had a side business, like an e-commerce with a few friends. Actually, we were selling bikinis online. <laughs> we have a friend from my, my hometown. He had a clothing manufacturing business for B2B. He was selling to stores. So we wanted to leverage his like capacity, but sell online. But like everybody was doing something else and we were like all putting money, but nobody was full-time. So I had to be full-time. And also I felt that I had to do something novel, different. This approach of being in Brazil and copying something successful in the US and doing the Brazilian version, it didn't excite me that much. So when I came to learn a little bit more about rooftop solar, I was excited. It was a business that had various elements that started to create a passion inside me. So one, solving the key problem of the world today, which is climate change. Second, in a country like Brazil, solving a big social thing. I was in a 
in InterSolar, which is the largest solar fair in the South Hemisphere. And there was another person who told something very interesting. One of the metrics being poor is how much of your income goes to utility payments. Electricity and gas. In Brazil, there's like 40% of the population that uh, more than 10% of their income goes into paying like the electricity and their gas uh, bill to hit their stoves. It's a big social problem in Brazil. There's a lot of pressure in the family incomes into electricity. So solving a climate problem, solving a social problem, and finally being an industry that uh, would have tailwinds for the next century. Timing was a component as well. I felt and observing other successful entrepreneurs, I always perceived that uh, there's a timing element. There's always like a one to two year window of time. Some industries will arise. And if you're there and you're taking risk, it increases the odds that you become successful. So I felt that solar didn't happen in Brazil at that point of time. So I could be one of the first entrepreneurs to tackle uh, and trying to solve the problem. But actually the timing was a little bit uh, early. Early, yeah. <laughs> now when I look back that year, 2014, when I first started to think about it, Brazil had only installed uh, 300 solar systems, uh, like 300. And if you compare it to today, how many there are systems installed today, today? Last year, it was close to a million systems uh, installed in the year, which put uh, Brazil as the largest distributed solar market in the world after China and India, which are continents. Uh, it's a bigger market than the US, it's bigger than Germany, it's bigger than Australia which all are well-known as top distributed solar, rooftop solar markets in the world. So it was like really, really the early days. What was that process of building a conviction? You mentioned that there were only 300 panels and the market was super early. You kind of had the passion and you had the use case of Europe and Germany, but what made you think that this thing could fly in Brazil? So, yeah, I won't lie to you. There was a market validation from a very smart guy called Elon Musk. And uh, Elon Musk, when he sold PayPal and started to do the crazy things that he did today, there was like three businesses that he put together. Tesla, which was trying to, to, to solve climate change. Because when you see the emissions of CO2, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we're talking about 50 billion tons a year. And that number has to go to zero. We have to go from 50 billion to zero. And when you break this 50 billion, it's like 30% um, electricity generation, like coal, gas in Europe, in the US. 20% of the problem, it's mobility. So Elon was uh, doing Tesla to solve the mobility part of the problem. And he was doing solar city to solve the energy part of the problem. So one, I said that very smart guys doing that in the US and solar city was quite big already in 2015. So there was a little bit of a 
copycatting in that regards, but also as a guy who worked a lot with strategy at BCG, I feel that I, I have sort of like the first principle framework thinking. And I, I looked very basic drivers, but uh, the most important drives to, to check whether a market has the potential or not. And it's three drivers, pretty much. The price of electricity, the amount of sunlight that you have, and the cost of labor. And on those three drivers, Brazil was top quartile. Brazil has the same cost of electricity that a Californian has per unit, like 20 cents of dollar, which is crazy because a Californian is 10 times richer than a Brazilian. We have much more sun that most of the countries in the world, not in a specific region, everywhere, like from north to south. The state of Brazil who has the least amount of sun, which I think it's Paraná or Santa Catarina, it's better than all over Germany, which was a superpower in distributed solar. And finally, cost of labor, because rooftop solar is very... Labor intense. It's very labor intense. It's very affordable. But compared to the traditional centralized approach, there is more labor because you have to climb roofs, blah, blah, blah. So those three drivers, if you compound them, the IRR, the return on the investment is just better in Brazil. So I said, it didn't happen, but it's going to happen. I better start now. All the fear that I had in the other business ideas, like the conversation with my father, for some reason, I think I was ready. The passion was there. The learnings were there. And I quit the job without thinking. I had a little bit of money in the bank account because I had took a loan while I was uh, at Wharton, like a student loan. Instead of spending my money, I kept my money because I was thinking, no, I might have to bootstrap a little bit. And I quit the job and, and I... I went to my house. I used to live in a house with three other people, my brother and two friends. And so I bought a big table from an auction from one of the companies of Eki Batista, who was a multi-billionaire back in the beginning of the last decade. Put together a table. I bought a telephone and a, a, a nice internet and I said, founding my, my solar company. That's how I started. But Solfacil as a company started when in 2018, right? Yeah. So what did you do since 2015, <clears throat> right? 16 okay. for a couple of years before Solfacil. Yeah. So 2015, it was clear for me that distributed solar would be a success in Brazil. But it was not clear to me what was the successful business model so I started in the industry without knowing what I would do exactly. I gave myself like two, three months to figure what to do. So I was doing everything, like entering, like I was checking data from public companies like Solar City to understand their business model, unit economics, how they made money. I was like calling suppliers in China and trying to figure what was the price to import panels from China. Typically in the middle of the year, you, you have the solar fares so I was going to a few like fairs that existed at that point of time. And I did a week course to learn how to install a solar panel. And then I came to a conclusion like three months later, after quitting my job, that the market was pretty small. 
and there was actually not much to be done. So when you see the ecosystem today, there are players of all kinds. There are like SaaS models, media companies, there's everything. But I felt that there's just one thing that I can do right now, which is just sell the solar system to the consumer, like an installing business, like an engineering business. So I started in the market with an installing business, which was similar to what Solar City did in the US, but they were, they were an installer with a finance product. They had a lease. I didn't have capital to finance customers. So I was selling solar systems like cash or leveraging loans from traditional banks. So interesting because as far as I know, Brazilian mentality is to buy everything. How do you call it? Parceiras? Like in installments? Yes. So how did you overcome that cultural desire to buy everything in installments and sold the whole system for cash? That's a good point because actually at that point of time, the solar system was like triple the price of what it is today. And today, a uh, solar system is like 30,000 reais, which is a lot for the Brazil, like $6,000. It's much cheaper than other countries, but like for Brazilian standards, it's a very considerable investment. So I actually, like my first proposals, without having the capital, I would offer consumers a lease option, which was like, uh, they could pay me installments forever. There was not a lot of interest. People wanted to buy cash. So what I figured was the early adopters of solar energy in Brazil were people who had savings. So most of the systems that I saw at that point of time were cash. I would say like 90 something percent were cash. Also because there was no decent financing option. Brazil has the highest real interest rates in the world. It what was, was like, it, like? it is right now. It used to be like 14? that. No. What right was, now, like... Uh, they started to bring it down yeah, a little bit, Yeah, right? they're bringing it, but it's 13% a year. Just so if you crazy. put it... If you, as a consumer, if you have savings... You put a, your money on the bank and you were remunerated 13%. So it's like half the return that the VCs give to their investors in the US in a fixed income. And so if you invest and you have that return, you can imagine the cost of credit. That's the cost of the funding of the banks plus the spread. So the interest rates were really high and people were buying cash. It was not a big problem in the beginning. And it helped the fact that... Uh, I was able to bootstrap because I figured after one another month that I could sell the solar system to the consumer without holding inventory. I would just buy the system as soon as I would sell because there was already a distributor, an equipment distributor in the market that had local inventory. So I didn't have to source from China. So from a working capital perspective, it was pretty nice because I would sell with a markup, I would buy. So I managed to grow for like many consecutive months with my own savings. And, and, and one curious fact about starting the solar space was uh, all the other business ideas that I had. The first thing that I thought was uh, who's going to be my partner. So like every business, like SmubHub, 
the bikini thing, the companies like in, in Project A, who's going to be the partners? So always the idea that for you to start a business, you have to have at least two people. And for some reason, in the solar space, I had the opposite fit. I said, I'm going to start this business. I don't want a partner right now. And the reason for that is I was so passionate. I didn't have any sort of fear. I, I just felt safe on my own. But also, I didn't want to compromise. I didn't want to sit in a table. I have like, I want to go to that direction. My partner wants to go to that direction. And we go to a direction that it doesn't align with any of the directions. So it's sort of like something without a soul. Eventually, I brought a lot of people around me. So I have my co-founders. But in the beginning, I was very like, it has to be on, on my own terms. When did you realize that one of the big growth hurdles was the cost and inability to access the credit? For, for Soul Fossil, like what was that moment? It was to some extent a little bit clear that financing was an important factor because when I would see companies like Solar City, they were doing that already in the US. So I sort of knew a little bit that that was an important factor. I think early adopters buying cash took away that pain point of my side for a while. But then it started to become clear again when I I was doing a lot of online marketing to attract customers actually for a period of time I remember like Google Brazil inviting me I was probably the top Google AdWords investors like solar energy in Brazil not that uh, it was too much at that point of time because the market was small but I remember all my campaigns on Google on Facebook converting easily a lot of customers so the value prop was very attractive, but the conversion was very low. So I typically say that an installer, like a consumer knocks his door or enters his website, asks for a quote, salesperson will call the consumer, will explain what, how the technology works and what's the value prop. And at some point he's going to tell him the price. And I typically say that in this moment of the conversation, there is a deep silence uh, of a few seconds because uh, for some reason, that consumer expected the price to be a tenth of what the person told him. So this low conversion, I mean, it was pointing to me that we had to have like different option for those people to buy the systems in an easier way. The only bank in Brazil that uh, financed those systems at that point of time was Santander, the Spanish bank, who has a strong footprint here in Brazil. But their interest rates were too high. They had short terms. Uh, they required down payments. It was clearly not a good option. There was also a huge trend of very successful fintechs in Brazil like Newbank, Creditas, OpenCall, like many fintechs that were emerging. And uh, a perception that Latam was a very good market for, for fintechs because there was so much bank concentration. I was more and more thinking I should find like a fintech angle in this space. And there was also necessity. I almost bankrupted like four times 
I was clearly losing my hope. I said, I have to, to do something different. So I started to push myself and said, you know what? I think I have to put together a solar fintech instead of like trying to solve the problem by talking to the consumers and trying to sell them. I'm going to create this tool and help all the other installers who used to be my competitors, and I'm going to partner with them and I'll, I'll power boost their companies by putting together a, a credit line for consumers to buy solar system from them much better than the ones that we had available. And in less than five years since you launched as a credit fintech, right, to bankroll the installation of solar uh, panels, it grew into the largest lender to SMBs and consumer as well. So if you could drill down three to five of your most important lessons in terms of managing this growth, because from what I know, you also grew on revenue part as well, right? You 5X, you 8X your revenue year over year. So it was pretty consistent growth, both in terms of product, in terms of business, in terms of distribution, as well as in terms of revenue. So one of the very important things is for you to understand the dynamics of the marketplace. Solar space is a very commoditized space. Uh, even though it's a good that costs a lot, the consumer only buys it once every 30 years. So clearly, one of the important things was distribution. If I, if I go and I try to acquire those customers myself, it's not going to be good from a distribution standpoint. I'm going to spend a lot of money in acquisition of customers. So the B2B2C approach was clearly better than the B2C. And that's where Elon Musk failed. Like Solar City didn't work well. It was a B2C company. So one of the things that were very, very important for me to scale that faster company was to say no. Because every other VC, every other person, they would tell me, you have to go B2C. I said, no, I can't go B2C. I mean, I have to go B2B2C because I haven't seen a B2C solar company in the world that is successful. That was a very, very important factor of, uh, of our success. Another thing that was important, because since day one, I had this vision that uh, we should eventually become an ecosystem. So today we are an ecosystem for solar installers. We have financing, but we also have equipment. We also have insurance. We also have like a monitoring IoT. So you have your own hardware business Yeah, as well. we, have, we have a hardware business. But uh, I like uh, a lot the new bank approach. New bank, it's such a successful company worldwide. Like in Brazil, it's such a case. And they, for many years, they did credit cards with NPS above 90%. For just then, after many years, to start to expand to have like a digital account, to have like investment products and insurance, blah, blah, blah. And I saw other digital banks that started as a full digital bank from day one. And you clearly see that new bank today is like hundred times bigger than those other banks. So only focusing on one thing and doing it super well was 
also very, very important. If we're trying to do like the ecosystem from day one, we would probably get lost. It's interesting because uh, in the early days, nobody, nobody was paying attention to us. And when banks like Santander, BV, Financera realized we're huge already, when you start to grow exponentially, it's already sort of gone. Like you have done like many months ago or many years ago, things that allowed you to grow so fast. So focus, uh, definitely very, very important. And your initial focus was this credit line for consumers so they could afford buying the solar panels. Yes, yes. And how did you know at which point you were ready to add additional product like launch a marketplace, launch a hardware business, launch insurance? It was definitely the moment where we realized that even though we still have a lot to be done, I mean, our product, it's in a continuous evolution, the financing product, we got to a scale and a recognition that we're sort of like mature in that product. We also had to build the network of installers and the credibility to allow us to do other things. Additionally, I'm in a very commoditized business in all dimensions, like solar is commoditized, credit is commoditized. So from a differentiation standpoint, doing something else was important for our future. So my client, it's the, 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 the solar installer mainly, and uh, he's being approached by other banks, he's being approached by other equ equipment distributors. So we wanted to build like a one-stop shop of digital convenience for him, where he could find all the things he needs to operate his business, but more importantly, grow and grow with profitability. So we were mature with the credit. And also we came to a very, very important conclusion, which is why companies want you to be B2C? Because they want you to have the end customer who has the customer owns the value chain, like Mercado Libre. They have the customer. So that's why their marketplace is so, so successful. And I was like thinking one day at home and I said, wow, listen, this is a market where like 80% of the purchases will be financed. So there is no customer if there is no finance. So to, to some extent, it's our loan is going to pay all the rest of the value chain. Starting with the consumer, we're going to pay the consumer who's going to pay the installer, who's going to pay the, the equipment distributor, who's going to pay the, the software who helps. Mm -hmm. It's going to pay all the money comes from our loans. So we had done the most difficult, which is finance the whole value chain. It was time to capture additional value from a business standpoint, but also create additional convenience for the solar installer. So when you think about the TEM of the solar space in Brazil, there's three big profit pools. There is uh, the installation part of like the service part. This is part of our partners, highly fragmented among thousands of installers. It's very big part, but uh, highly fragmented. There is the finance profit pool. There's all those banks who are in making loans and they're making like a spread. 
And there are also the equipment part, like somebody selling the equipment, making a markup out of it. We didn't want to mess with our partners part of the, the pie. So we expanded to equipment distribution. We started with a marketplace approach. So basically we were partnering with equipment distributors that uh, existed already in the market and giving them a chance to better fulfill the needs of our partners. It didn't work out because uh, they would sell the solar systems to our partners, but then try to bypass us in the second sale, in the third sale. But they use you as a customer acquisition yes, channel, exactly. basically. Exactly. So it didn't work because of that. I mean, it's not fair because it's such a huge network that we built. But also because uh, given that we were not their main channel, they had their own channel, they were not giving the service levels that we would hope to our partners and partner installer. So eventually we decided to verticalize there, like to buy a solar, solar equipment distributor and become a distributor, import solar panels, manage like warehouses all over the country in an attempt to, to better serve our customers. And when you think about hurdles that still exist today in terms of continuous adoption of solar energy, what do you think are those? Let's take Brazil as an example. We have a uh, 90 million households or better electricity consumers of which 80 something are households and you have SMEs like 5 million and then some, some industrial consumers as well. Taking the households part of the, of the consumers, 10% of Brazilians, they live uh, in apartments, so they don't have roofs to adopt solar energy. In those cases, they have to buy solar energy from somewhere else. There are many companies who have a business model to address those customers. It's called in English like community solar. They put together a larger farm and sell the excess energy to those consumers. And then when you go to the other 90% of the consumers who have a roof, only 70% of them own the house that they leave. The other 30%, they rent the house. So one of the hurdles, it's how to put a good that will last 25 years on a roof that it's not owned by the person who lives below that house. You've got to find a way to address those customers. And then when you go to the, the other 70%, Brazil is a country where like half of the population they have credit problems. So like access to credit. Access to credit. In the US, you have the concept of FICO score. Brazil, we have the, the inverse concept. We have like negative bureaus. So pretty much if you did something wrong, you're marked there and you don't have access to credit. If you didn't pay your utility bill for a few months, you didn't pay your credit card, 50% of the population are on this blacklist. And uh, it's harder for them to to get loans. And Brazil has a, a huge like chicken and egg problem, which to be honest is one of the reasons I started SoFacil as well, because I think like solar gives the, opp the opportunity to try to solve for that. The reason why Brazil's default so much on their loans, it's because we have the highest cost of debt 
in the world, when you see the inventory of that in Brazil, it's way smaller than the US. Like it's small, we should have more credit to fuel the economy. We have little credit, but the cost of that for people, it's much higher than any other country. So it's not, it's not a health ecosystem. So because of that, people start to default a lot. And because of that, banks start to increase their, their interest rates. It's a process that never ends. It just gets more and more expensive. And then it starts to create a culture in which people just get a loan and say, I'm not going to pay for it because it's a rigged uh, system. So what I thought is solar is such a good asset because it allows people to get a loan that pays for itself. It's not up to the organization of the person to pay it back. The system is going to be there. It's going to produce the energy. So we're trying to have an approach to risk uh, in the solar space, different from the banks. We look the customer data. It's an important, but it's not the only one. We check like the solar installer that's doing the project, whether he's a good solar installer. The project, is it a viable and good project? Because... If the project will allow the customer to save more money than he spends with the utility mm -hmm. and he's paying the utility because if you don't pay the utility in Brazil, they're going to cut your energy. I mean, there's a lot to believe that the performance of this loan, it's going to be decent. And we've been here for five years and we've raised a 2.5 billion highs of capital to finance those loans. And th that's where it gets like third, uh, and eventually I didn't talk about it, the third part of our ecosystem, which is hardware, we felt that we had to capture the data that shows that those solar systems are doing a good job. They are producing energy, not only to inform the consumer, to inform the, the installer, but also to inform capital markets. That's why we built Ampera, which is our own proprietary, like it's a smart meter that monitors the performance of the system. It helps us to address those, those important hurdles. On the fundraising side, so you were one of three companies that raised the most capital in 2022 together with Neon and Creditas. So what did you learn about fundraising? So it was hard for us to raise money in the beginning because Solar in the beginning was perceived as a very small market, one. Two, it was perceived as a regulated market. Typically, VCs, they don't want to play markets where they don't control things. Three, it was perceived as not a, as a tech industry because it's very associated with infrastructure, project finance, blah, blah, blah. So in the beginning, it was very, very hard past those hurdles, uh, eventually we did. And I think like entrepreneurs that raise money, I, I read a thread on Twitter, now X, that they have one of those three traits. They are really, really good sellers. They put together incredible teams, or finally they have attraction that is hard to, to go against facts and numbers. I think uh, I was the third type of guy. I, I learned to do the other things. I do think like I can tell a story. I do think my team is awesome. The reason why I raised money because our traction was too strong 
to so eventually the VC said, okay, I remember a very famous person in the VC ecosystem. After a few attempts, he said, like, I can't fight with those numbers anymore. Was it difficult to raise for the ecosystem type of solution versus yeah. a single focused application kind of business? The ecosystem approach was not a, a problem for us because even though it might seem that we're not focusing, there is a focus on an asset class. Let's say my international benchmarks or maybe competitors one day, if we go to the same geographies, they took the different approach. They did like a point of sale financing and all of them expanded to other asset classes. So I'm focusing on doing point of sale financing, but I'm going to do solar point of sale financing, window point of sale finance, roof point of sale finance. So you're focusing on this business model in different categories. I did the other approach. I'm focusing on one category and doing different things. I'm focusing on the installer. However, it's, um, it's very rare to see a ecosystem that is successful. How do you define ecosystem? Is it like Amazon is an ecosystem, right? Oh yeah, for right? sure. Uh, Google is an, is an ecosystem, would you say? Yeah, Google, yeah, it's huge. They do so many different that, uh, that uh, I think we could call them an ecosystem. But for example, I don't think new bank is an ecosystem because they're doing banking. They're doing all the products that a bank have. I think Mercado Libre is an ecosystem because they go from e-commerce to like financial services. They have Mercado Pago and have, so I think the ecosystem, it's like getting in a, a vertical, let's call it real estate and doing many different things that require very different capabilities. So like in one day I'm talking to Goldman Sachs and raising like a 1 billion reais like ABS funds. I'm doing credit analysis. And then in the other day, I'm in a warehouse separating solar panels, working with logistics company. And the other day I'm working with 3D printing and doing like a hardware. I see a lot of banks in Brazil, digital banks trying to become an ecosystem. So every other bank has a marketplace right now, which is like, I don't think that consumers wake up today in Brazil and think of those banks as the place they will buy their things. It's not the top of mind. So being able to become the top of mind in two different industries, it's what we should uh, require for you to be considered like an ecosystem. Is it fair to say that being an ecosystem is a competitive mode of soul fossil today? Sure, sure. And it, I mean, it's, it's very hard. Like, uh, we're definitely more mature in the financing space because we've been doing that for five years and, uh, the equipment part, it's like a one and a half year marketplace and probably almost one year, like verticalized but it's definitely a moat. So we have that advantage because uh, I don't have to make all of my money from financing anymore. I can be very competitive against the banks. I don't have to make all my money out of uh, equipment sale because now I have the financing to compensate. So we managed to get many commodities, put them all together in the bucket and create a, a strong moat. 
you are wearing so many hats. Yes. Like you mentioned, one day you need to renegotiate that. Another day you need to deal with hardware. What's your approach to learning and, you know, developing the skills and capabilities? How do you learn? How do you think about learning? I think having a very, very long-term perspective helps because I also realize that in sometimes in the entrepreneurial space, there are so many times with short-term thinking and objectives, I want to have an exit. So when you have like a, you are in the industry that you love, you're solving the big problem that you love. I mean, you are always open to learn new things. It's going to take time. So first of all, it's long-term, uh, long-term vision that connects with a clear value proposition. So our clear value proposition is like, we, we want to create an ecosystem for the solar installers. So that clarity, it's very important because you don't create products that conflict with themselves. Second is like, I went to Stanford, like to do an executive program. And uh, there was a session that we had to switch tires of a NASCAR car as a team. And there was a competition among eight different teams on who could do it faster. And there was like a guy who worked with NASCAR for 20 years, giving us the instructions, sort of like a coaching session, right? And uh, put together the teams. We had like six people in our team. So when you put six smart people in a table, I mean, there's a little bit of competition who, who has the best strategy. And, uh, and then 10 minutes of strategy, we go there and switch the tire. 35 seconds, the worst time of the eight teams. Then the coach said, now you have five minutes to practice. And then the time gets from 35 to 15 seconds. So what was the lesson there? I mean, you learn much more by doing it than studying it. Doing the MVP, I mean, as simple as possible, as fast as possible for you to learn in action, it's definitely important. I knew what working capital was since college, since like Wharton, but I just felt what working capital was when I had to pay like a Chinese hundreds of millions of solar panels that I hadn't sold yet. On the mentorship part, do you have mentors or advisors? And how do you think about building this type of system of support around yeah. yourself? So I put together a team of angel investors that I, I really think it's diverse. Each of them have uh, their strength. So one of them is really good negotiator. There's people with more legal uh, expertise and others with more like uh, capital markets. So like, not that they are my mentors, but uh, they are my source of consultation and we have a great relationship. But uh, to be honest, I do a bad job in terms of seeking for, for mentorship because I'm so focused on running the business, being in the center of the hurricane and trying to figure the next thing. How do you recharge your batteries? If you are in this constant center of hurricanes, if you are multitasking across a bunch of different segments of the company, what gives you energy? What energizes me the most 
is thinking about the possibilities of the future. Because the level of intensity that I live my life, if I didn't felt energized by that, I would have died already. So definitely thinking about the future, about the possibilities. I don't need to go out that much. I mean, enjoy a lot being with my wife. Now I have a young kid and I'll, I'll have another one by the beginning of next year. I have three dogs. I'm very connected with my family. I mean, my brothers and my father, to some extent, they're also my best friends. One thing that I ha I want to do more, it's practice sports and being in contact with the nature. When I was young and I used to live in my hometown, I was most of the time out of the city climbing trees. And uh, sometimes I forget, but that's my natural state of being. So that's something that I am planning to do more, even for the sake of Sofasio. Because after I do those things, I become more more effective or productive. When you switch your mind from the space where you're constantly in and then switch it back on, you kind of see things differently. So I think it's almost like a necessity, right, to put yourself in a different environment where you can't really think the way you do in your regular everyday life. Yeah, I mean, I'm clearly obsessed with what I do. And I think a lot of the successful entrepreneurs probably they are as well. So having that perspective, it's also important because you are the obsessed, but then you have 500 people around you. And even though they are passionate about what they do as well, probably most of them don't have the level of intensity that you have. So getting perspective of other things that exist in life, it's not only important for you as a person, even though you're, you're more unbalanced than other people, but also to understand the people that you are interacting and, and realizing that all of them are not like you and you have to respect that because if they were like you, they would be in your position. Fair enough. Let's move to the rapid fire. Okay. I'll ask you five short questions and I'll appreciate your immediate response. Let's dive right in. The first question is, what one book or piece of content or movie every founder should consume and why? I like the biography of Steve Jobs. Completely crazy person. You know, funny enough, it was my favorite to the extent that I read the whole biography on the app on my phone. Oh, yeah? I couldn't get a hold of the book. The books were sold out. And I read the whole thing on the iPhone. If you were to become in charge of any other company in Latin America or in the world for a day, what company would you run and why? Yeah, I know clearly the answer. I'm going to produce a movie at some point in my life. So if I could be a movie director for a day, I would definitely be one. Would it be documentary or...? I like the idea of creating a movie about heroes. So I was thinking about the telling the story of like the 3G guys and how they bought Budweiser. If you think about the story of Lema and Encyclopedia and Marcel Telles and how on the 90s they bought Brahma, a small brewery in Brazil, and then they knocked the door of Budweiser in the US to ask for a visit and to learn how they manufacture beers. And like 20 years later, they go there and buy the largest brewery, like an American brewer that, that sponsors like Super Bowl, a bunch of Brazilians. 
That's uh, and they control like I don't know like a third of the beers that are sold in the world. So I find uh, I find it like a very good plot to uh, a like an international movie that challenge a little bit the status quo of uh, of always things come out of the U.S. The only sad part, but uh, I mean there was a little bit of a problem recently with uh, America. So I said, oh, wow. I had the perfect story and now uh, there's, but, but maybe that's going to be the, bring a little bit of a uh, spicy to this story because I like the movie about the McDonald's. Did you, did you watch? Yeah. Yeah. So he's not a nice guy. I mean, uh, he basically took the business out of the yeah, brothers, but it's, but it's always some drama. If you sugarcoat the story of, you know, entrepreneurship or building businesses, especially in a complex market environments, you would not tell the whole story. Yes. And what's the point of the movie? Yes, for sure. I already yeah. see you already thinking yeah, long-term strategically. I'm glad that I remember that, that idea. What's your biggest failure to date and what did you learn out of it? I won't say it's a failure, but I, I'm becoming more self-aware that I, I uh, I'd say I'm not a good manager. As I've mentioned before, I'm very intense, and I think that's an important fact of the success of Sofacio. But sometimes I forget that uh, I have a comp. I mean, it's a big idea. It's a company of 500 people. It's not a matter whether me as an individual, I'm the best, blah, blah, blah. But I have to find a way to make the most out of those 500 people. So I have to use my energy in different ways in order to achieve. So that's something that I've been struggling a lot. To be honest, I'm, I'm not 100% sure if it's a matter that I, I'm going to be able to improve or I'm going to have to find more and more people that help me with that. Because to be honest, I don't like to manage. I like to think and I like Strategize. to... Yeah, that's... I mean, doing one-on-ones and, and sitting with people online, telling what they should do, I don't like to do that much. So I've been struggling a little bit with it. I think we've been proving a lot uh, as a company. I've brought people to help me with that. We've been doing sessions with our leadership where they recognize that uh, that's something that I fail. So just being self-aware and uh, finding the best way to, for that not to be a problem for what we're doing as a company. Imagine you're hosting a dinner party and you can invite any four people in the world, dead or alive, who would be at your dinner table? Wow, wow. Uh, let me think. Maybe politicians. Yeah, a politician, for <laughs> sure. I will answer that. I mean, there is a lot of hate about Lula in Brazil, but there is, I would prefer to sit and chat with Lula much more than Bolsonaro, Winston Churchill, <laughs> maybe Barack Obama, and I don't know, uh, Mandela, I think like Mandela or uh, what's the name of the Uru uh, Uruguayan Pepe. I mean, those guys who spend a lot of time in prison, Mujica, yeah. So, so like uh, you're being arrested for like 25 years of your life and uh, coming back without hate. I'd throw Lee Kuan Yew to that list. 
the founding father of Singapore. I don't know if you read his yeah, books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the way no, he built... No, I haven't. I lived in Singapore for four years, and just the way he built the country without any natural resources, 10 million population, the whole country, byproduct of Malaysia that Malaysia didn't want to take. There's so many lessons on strategy from the way he did for that. For sure long-term strategy that was just incredible yeah. last question if you were an alcoholic beverage which beverage would you be and why beer why because i like beer and uh what does beer tell about your personality i would say maybe patience and uh, slow not so fast <laughs> it takes me some time but i get there it takes a little bit more time to get drunk with beer versus like vodka. Fabio, thank you so much for being with me today and for sharing so much of your personality and learnings and approaches towards building your business and your life. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a nice chat. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The J-Curve. It was such a pleasure to have Fabio as my guest. To learn more about Fabio and Soulfossil, go to soulfossil.com.br. And to hear more from us, go to www.thejcurve.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at The J-Curve Podcast. Rate us on Spotify and follow me on Instagram at Olga Maslikova with KH. Thank you for being with me today.